Welcome to episode 35 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark K. Bell. I'm a family physician, professor at UGA, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. It's your evidence-based online primary care reference from Wiley Blackwell. Please check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. If you subscribe, you get a powerful primary care-oriented uh, online reference, and you also get all of the poems sent to you in your email inbox, approximately 25 per month and you know over 250 a year. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and the podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. Okay, now we got all that out of the way. Joining me again are Dr. Henry Berry, family physician and one of the founders of Poems, and Dr. John Hickner, editor of the Journal of Family Practice. John, how are you doing? Fine. I'm looking forward to seeing you in two days at Second City down in Chicago, where we're doing an essential evidence course for the Oak Street Physicians, which is a very innovative uh, managed care type group that cares mainly for elderly folks, and they do a fine job of it. So looking forward yeah, to seeing I'm you. Look, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I saw Second City in Toronto when I was at the NAPCRAG meeting a few months ago, and that was a lot of fun. And I, I know now to sit way toward the back of the room. So that's right. Get, that's get right. Pulled up on stage because horror that what the horror of that. But anyway, it should be fun. And yeah, it sounds like a really innovative care model, and I'm looking forward to meeting the docs and learning um, uh, what they do there. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We are recording this a few days after uh, New Year's, and hopefully everybody has recovered from all of the winter holiday-related festivities, and you are now ready to start your exercise and weight loss regimens. <laughs> <laughs> so John, I think John was still a little hungover because he we were supposed to do this yesterday and he missed the call. So <laughs> we're just blaming That's on a right. delayed hangover. Just, just waking up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, John, it is uh, your poem to start us off with. Yes. This is one of a series of studies about management of acute pain. In this case, acute low back pain. I'll discuss this abstract first. And then we should talk a little bit more generally about management of acute pain. This study appeared this year in Annals of Emergency Medicine, volume 74, starting on page 512. The researchers enrolled 320 patients who presented to an emergency department with non-radicular low back pain of at least two weeks duration. On average, it was three days. With a score of at least six on a 24-point scale called the Roland Morris Disability questionnaire, which is designed for low back pain and also includes a pain scale. 90% uh, of the patients had a score of 10% or higher, so they had significant pain. Now, the patients were randomized either to ibuprofen 600 milligrams three times a day or ibuprofen plus a placebo, baclofen, metoxalone or tenazidine. So there were three muscle relaxant groups and one placebo group. And then of course they were followed up using an attention to treat analysis. Of course, all the patients improved over the course of seven days, but at seven days, there was absolutely no difference in the groups in terms of moderate to severe back pain or on the disability scale. Although 34% uh, still had significant back pain, it was no difference, no better with these muscle relaxants. So the conclusion is that these muscle relaxants really did not add anything to pain relief or functional status. Now, 
this fellow named Friedman has done just a terrific job over the last five or six years studying different types of acute pain. So this is one of a series of studies. He published another one in JAMA in which he added to naproxen, in that case, either flexoril, cyclobenzaprine, or oxycodone. And the patients did no better with the addition of those medications compared to naproxen alone. And these are two of several different studies like this that he's done. So the overall conclusion seems to be that NSAIDs do as well as NSAID plus just about anything else in terms of relief of acute low back pain. Though I would comment that none of these studies have assessed pain, say, at day two, three, or four. So it, it still leaves some wiggle room for patients with more severe pain needing perhaps two or three days of um, a narcotic-type pain medication, but not a week worth of a narcotic pain medication. So excellent studies. As I say, this is one of a series uh, that uh, confirm the same findings. Yeah, interesting, John. A really good study, really um, confirming, I think, what we see, at least what I see in practice. You know, when I talk to patients who've been in the ER and they were put on the usual, you know, ER cocktail for low back pain, including Flexeril, you know, and I ask them, you know, does the Flexeril, is it making any difference for them? They really, it doesn't seem to, to matter in stopping. It doesn't seem to make much difference. I do think it'd be interesting to see comparisons with some non-medication modalities, you know, mm -hmm. heat. We, we always talk about using heat for a muscle spasm. And, you know, I find it uh, when I get it, you know, comforting, but at the same time, you know, it'd be interesting to see uh, comparisons like that. But it, like you pointed out, it's certainly consistent with some of the other studies with some of the other NSAIDs and um, muscle relaxants. Henry, any uh, thoughts? Yeah. So first of all, this is a, a common problem and it's kind of the bane of many primary care clinicians' ex existences. What do you do for acute back pain as well as for chronic? If we recall back, oh, it's probably 20, 30 years ago, there were a lot of natural history studies around what happens to people with acute, low, uncomplicated low back pain. And generally, six to eight weeks, most people are back to normal. So looking at one-week outcomes is kind of a false paradigm, although many of our patients want fast relief. This is a chance for us to maybe think about delaying tactics or reassurance that this is not unusual because many of our patients are worried, is there something more serious um, that, that's going on? Now, I also, because this is a common problem, I went back and I tried to look at some data on muscle relaxants. And there was a Cochrane review that identified 30 generally well-done studies of benzodiazepine and non-benzodiazepine muscle relaxants. And it turns out that they were all effective in the range of numbers needed to treat in the range of six to seven within a week. Um, now, the downside is that um, the sedation, the CNS effects, uh, where you end up with a number needed to harm of about 12. So, so it's a, a benefit-harm ratio that many of our patients might really be concerned about. Now, that was done, unfortunately, in about 2003. And I tried to find was if there was anything more recent. And a couple of years ago, the American College of Physicians did a guy 
a guideline and they did a systematic review that basically confirmed what the Cochrane said. Now, the main thing, though, is that none of these studies actually looked at combination treatments. So this Friedman paper is probably one of the first that's tried to really rigorously look at combinations of medications. Thanks for the review, Henry. That's good, good info. And I think you have a quiz for us, too. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Um, Yes, so this month's quiz is purely clinical. So just imagine that you're in your office and you have your patient who comes in and the blood pressure is 190 over 120. The nurse is panicking. They've got the little red arrow on the door and they're coming and dragging you out because they're in a, in a tizzy because they've never seen a blood pressure this high. Now, the patient is not in any pain, is not taking any over-the-counter products or supplements that might raise their blood pressure and appear to be fairly adherent to the medications. So you hook the patient up to one of those newfangled blood pressure monitors that does a bunch of readings over five minutes, and the average reading is still 190 over 110. The patient isn't telling you anything that scares the heck out of you, no headache or chest pain, abdominal pain, edema, anything like that that would uh, indicate some acute end organ involvement. The clinical exam is unremarkable. You do an EKG and it looks okay too. So here's the question. Which of the following statements about patients like this who present to office practices with hypertensive urgencies are true? One, these patients require urgent hospitalization and lowering of the blood pressure. Two, in one month, most of these patients will have their blood pressure adequately controlled. Three, in six months, most of these patients will not have their blood pressure adequately controlled. And four, within one week, more than 10% of these patients will experience a major adverse cardiovascular event, such as a myocardial infarction or stroke. Stay tuned. So is none of the above an option? (laughs) (laughs) I've done that to you before, but I I will tell you that's not the case this time. One of those is correct. So we got to hear more from Henry because it's his turn for his poem. Yeah. So this poem asks, do patients with mild gallstone pancreatitis who undergo early cholecystectomy, do these patients have better outcomes than those who undergo delayed surgery? This was published in November in the British Journal of Surgery by Moody and colleagues. So this is actually a timely paper for me. My mother, whose kartoffel puffer lakas are just to die for, uh, I mentioned that last episode, she was recently hospitalized for a bout of mild pancreatitis associated with gall t- gallstones. So I'll tell you what we did later on, okay? So these authors searched multiple databases to identify randomized trials of early versus delayed cholecystectomy. Um, Since there wasn't any standard definition, they basically declared that we're going to call early surgery if it happened during the index hospitalization and delayed surgery would occur at least two weeks later. So they didn't really describe doing any searching for publication bias, but they did a bunch of funnel plots that actually suggested that they've identified very little risk of publication bias. Ultimately, they found five trials with 629 patients. The studies were generally of good quality. Um, Each of them had slightly different definitions of mild gallstone pancreatitis, different rules, different scoring systems, but they all were generally sensible. So what did they find? Well, it turns out that only 10 out of the 318 patients who underwent early surgery required 
um, readmission compared with about 61 out of 311 who had delayed surgery. That would translate into a number needed to treat of about seven. Well, what were the complication rates? Well, it turns out that intraoperative complications were about 2% in both groups, and post-op complications were about 5% in both groups. Uh, the, those who had the early surgery also had a much lower rate of biliary events subsequent to that um, um, hospitalization, so generally did pretty well. So bottom line, patients with mild gallstone pancreatitis who get early surgery are generally better off than those who delay surgery for at least two weeks. So yeah, there are only five studies and only 629 patients, but the quality of the studies, the consistency of findings across the studies give pretty good confidence to the results. So what happened with my mom? Well, it turns out that the surgeons at her hospital weren't particularly interested in operating. Uh, my sister came to the rescue. She's a scrub nurse at a different hospital. She called her favorite surgeon, and we ended up transferring my mom to the other hospital where she had her surgery and has done very well ever since then. Excellent. And so we have a little uh, real live application of this. And I just wanted to, a couple of things I wanted to point out. One is that um, your kartoffel puffers, my family, my tradition is to make latkes on Christmas Day, top them with a fried egg, kind of a runny fried egg and sour cream. It is to die for, of course, with mimosas. <laughs> and then, um, so the publication, you mentioned publication bias. And so for our listeners, a lot of probably know that, but a few may not. Publication bias is when we look for, are there studies that were done, but weren't published because they didn't find a significant effect or a significant benefit. And so you do this thing called a funnel plot. And what you look for is asymmetry. So if the a bunch of if you look at the little studies and there are a bunch of little positive studies, but they're not a bunch of little negative studies to balance them, uh, then that would suggest that the little negative studies never got published. And uh, yeah, I, I first heard this theory of kind of letting the gallbladder cool off in what we used to call in my residency dogma rounds, which were the general surgery grand rounds where the surgeons would sit around and express their dogma with a very little uh, <laughs> referral to uh, <laughs> clinical trials, which in their defense probably weren't that many back then. So, John, any comments about this? Yeah, this is interesting because it parallels a study we presented out long ago about early surgery for hip fractures. Uh, mm -hmm. having better outcomes. In this case, uh, 24 hours was the cutoff. And also keep in mind that people that come in that need a, a coronary surgery, coronary artery surgery, are also being operated on earlier than they used to be. So I, I think there is this trend toward earlier surgery for those who really need it. And that's balanced, I hope, by people who not who do not need surgery, not getting the surgery. So there's a bit of a double-edged sword here, but early surgery does not appear to be a bad thing. And it's good to do randomized trials to figure that stuff out. So the last poem is uh, uh, called Dapagliflozin, or Farziga, um, reduces mortality and hospitalization for patients with mild heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, volume 381, page 1995. And this was really interesting, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it yet, but um, we'll, we'll talk about the results, and I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you guys think. So uh, dapagliflozin is an SGLT2 inhibitor for type 2 diabetes. They identified 4,744 patients with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, all getting standard therapy. They all had mostly uh, class 2, some class 3 
uh, heart failure. Anyone who had significant renal impairment or type 1 diabetes was excluded. Now, interestingly, only about 40% had type 2 diabetes at baseline. So 60% didn't. Uh, Mean age of the group was 66 years, which fits for patients with heart failure. They were randomized to either the uh, dapagliflozin 10 milligrams once a day or placebo. Uh, The groups looked the same at baseline and analysis was by intention to treat, and they followed the patients for 18 months. So at the end of that time, there were significantly fewer hospitalizations or urgent visits due to heart failure in the treatment group. Number needed to treat was about 27 over 18 months to prevent one unexpected visit or hospitalization. More importantly, all-cause mortality was significantly lower in the treatment group by just over 2%, so the number needed to treat was 44 over 18 months. Uh, Safety was good. There weren't any clinically important differences in adverse events between groups. Um, They found no difference between diabetic and non-diabetic patients for the composite outcome. Now, this was a silly composite. There was urgent visits, hospitalizations, and death. But in order to look at those subgroups uh, and have adequate numbers, they argued that you needed to look at this composite. But it was interesting that the composite was improved equally whether or not they had diabetes. So there may be some other mechanism at play here. Uh, Benefit was much greater for patients with class 2 heart failure uh, than with class 3. And in fact, it was not significant. Uh, The reduction in um, uh, benefit reduction in death was not significant for those with more severe heart failure, which again is kind of odd because typically you expect to see a larger uh, absolute reduction in risk and a similar relative reduction in more severely ill patients. And so, you know, to think about if the mechanism, would that make sense that patients with milder heart failure have a greater benefit? Or is this just data dredging, and we're just seeing a a random uh, pattern here. So bottom line, in patients with heart failure, mild heart failure, class 2, NYHI class 2, dapagliflozin reduced hospitalizations uh, or urgent visits with an NNT of 27 and all-cause mortality with an NNT of 44 over 18 months. Now, they talk about uh, metabolism, and I'm quoting here, myocardial metabolism, ion transporters, fibrosis, adipokines, and vascular function, uh, which sounds like a lot of hand-waving to me. <laughs> and I'm not quite, you know, those are a lot of big words strung together that I, uh, if I knew what those, what ion transporters did, I, I think I still know what they do. I, I've mostly forgotten. So anyway, Henry, I'm anxious to hear your your take on this one. I, I, I'm just guessing you might be a little skeptical of the results. Just a wild guess. Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing is that, you know, at least all-cause mortality was improved, and it doesn't matter how you get there. It, the mechanism doesn't matter, right? The fact is that the outcome was better. Um, have I told you how much I hate composite endpoints? Oh, I'm supposed to, we're not supposed to say the word hate, are we? Uh, I, I really strongly have an aversion and dislike for composite endpoints. I, I know it takes bigger studies to evaluate individual outcomes, but holy cow, at least if you're going to lump stuff, lump stuff that makes sense. Um, and when you read these kinds of studies that lump, you know, a whole bunch of fruit with broccoli, it just makes you want to distrust the research right from the get-go. So I agree with you that this oddity around 
patients with more severe heart failure, it could just be a reflection of data dredging and selective reporting of the outcome. So yeah, that's my skepticism. Um, it looks like they were actually maybe trying to find a new indication for this drug, which is to treat heart failure and not oh, diabetes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, and there are other drugs in this category, empaglyphosin and, and so on. So there, there are at least one, maybe two other drugs in this category. And so I assume those manufacturers will try to do the similar study. And so I suspect we'll probably have at least an attempted verification of this. And Henry, it's okay to hate composite outcomes. <laughs> Just don't hate people with composite outcomes. Oh, yeah. Okay? Yes. I mean, it's okay to hate composite outcomes. That's okay. Let, let yeah. your... Yeah. So when these other companies start to um, market their products for heart failure, that's called getting a second indication, which allows mm -hmm. them to extend the patent. What? Really? <laughs> they, I All never would right. have thought of that. I bet they're not doing it for that reason, Henry. No. <laughs> okay, you skeptics. I have yeah, to provide a little bit of balance here. My word. I mean, Henry admitted at the beginning there was an all-cause mortality reduction, and this was a large study, so it's likely that that's real. So I'm going to predict, and prediction is sometimes a little bit uh, risky, but I will predict that at least one of these SGLT2 inhibitors will be approved for heart failure and will prove to be at least somewhat effective. So as Henry likes to say, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think I, I'm, you know, uh, I'm making, we're making more fun of the composite outcomes, but the, as we've all you know, noted, the all-cause mortality is the ultimate, um, you know, you, outcome that you can't mess with. It doesn't depend on assertion bias and how we measure things and um, how we define things. It's, you know, <laughs> unless you're watching The Princess Bride, you know, you're either dead or not dead. <laughs> you can't be mostly dead. And um, anyway, so I think, uh, yeah, I think there is, and, and, you know, if I had mild heart failure, I'd certainly be looking at this and thinking NNT of 44 over a year and a half, maybe an NNT of 70 for a year. Yeah, that's not a bad, that's not a bad trade-off. So, yeah. Um, certainly something we should be uh, thinking about for our patients with class two heart failure. And I'm, I'm just interested to know why it didn't work in the more severe heart failure patients. Yes. But we'll have to stay, stay tuned for that as well. So Henry, um, back to you for the quiz answer. Yeah. So which of the following statements about patients presenting to office practices with hypertensive urgencies are true? One, these patients require urgent hospitalization and lowering of the blood pressure. Two, in one month, most of these patients will have their blood pressure adequately controlled. Three, in six months, most of these patients will not have their blood pressure adequately controlled. And four, within one week, more than 10% of these patients will experience a major adverse cardiovascular event, such as a myocardial infarction or stroke. Well, the correct answer is three. So a couple of years ago, um, researchers at the Cleveland Clinic identified out of 1.3 million office visits, they identified nearly 60,000 patients similar to the one in the scenario. That's a lot of people with hypertensive urgencies to study. It turns out that the clinicians referred fewer than 1% of these patients to the emergency department. Of that 1%, a quarter were hospitalized, and they were there for an average of three and a half days. So they made some comparisons about the hospitalized patients from the ones who weren't. And it turns out that the half of the hospitalized patients had systolic blood pressures over 200 or diastolic pressure over 120. 
What were the outcomes? Well, it didn't matter where they got treated. The likelihood of blood pressure control and the likelihood of adverse effects were low. For example, at one month, less than 15% of patients had controlled blood pressure, less than 15% after that, that interval. At six months, less than 40% had controlled blood pressure. So that's not terribly surprising because many of our patients tend to drift upward. So even still, the likelihood of a major adverse cardiac event was low in the next seven days, less than a tenth of a percent. Within a month, two-tenths of a percent. In the next six months, less than one percent. And hospitalization didn't really um, reduce any of those. So those numbers, those blood pressure numbers may look really scary, but the outcomes are not. So breathe a sigh of relief, take your own pulse, relax a little bit. If you would have sent one of these patients um, home with close follow-up, you know, and instructions to go to the emergency room if they experience scary symptoms like chest pain and stuff, that's probably okay. Good advice. And um, yeah, and there's there's some good studies uh, recently that, that back all of this up. So great, great information. You know, it, it's just time to get rid of this term hypertensive urgency because hypertensive urgencies don't exist. They just aren't. The emergency room physicians have caught on to this some time ago, and I've been embarrassed a couple of times when one of my residents sent a patient with high blood pressure off to the emergency department, and the ED calls and says, you know, why did you send this patient to us? So this is not spreading very quickly. So I hope our listeners have listened to this, and they do not send these patients to the emergency department where they do not belong. Yeah. And again, we're talking about asymptomatic patients, but um, great advice. Hey, um, thank you guys. Um, I wanted to, you know, we just talked about maybe we should, one of us will give a recommendation for something uh, medically related, even if it's kind of loosely medically related that you can read or watch. Um, my recommendation for today is Midnight in Chernobyl, which is kind of the definitive history of the Chernobyl events from 1985, I think it was, and a really, really interesting book. And we're you know, just at the point where the reactor is going critical and trying to keep my uh, neutrons straight from my protons. And um, there, there will be, you know, and I've, I've looked ahead a bit, there's a, a really detailed descriptions of what happens to the, the victims of this and the long-term implications of the radiation exposure. So uh, it was selected as one of the New York Times best books of 2019. And so far, I can highly recommend it. Hope everybody enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends, uh, rate us on iTunes. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. Mm-hmm.